At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. Should anyone who commits evil on a massive scale be offered a path to forgiveness? You might think that's questions related to some of the current events that we've been experiencing in our world, but it was actually the opening line of an article written by Tim Townsend in the Washington Post several years back. Should anyone who commits evil on a massive scale be offered a path to forgiveness? Townsend was the biographer of a man named Henry Gorecki. And Henry Gorecki, just a little bit of his story and why Townsend asked that question, was a Lutheran pastor from the state of Missouri who lived uh, in the 20th century. He originally pastored a small church in Missouri for a while. He actually, um, prior to World War II, uh, ran the St. Louis uh, Lutheran City Mission for a number of years, working among the poor in that city. But um, when World War II came, Gorecki made the decision to enlist, after his sons did, in the army as a chaplain when he was 50 years old. For many years, Gorecki was stationed with the 98th General Hospital, a mobile unit that would travel and serve, uh, a medical unit that would serve needs. And for a while, they were stationed in England for a number of years, serving wounded veterans and warriors that came off the field. But um, towards the end of his time in the army, uh, Gorecki uh, received some pretty harrowing orders. He was handpicked by some of the chief Uh, leaders of the Allies at the time, to be the chaplain in Nuremberg Prison after the end of World War II. Nuremberg Prison was where they held some of the top Nazi commanders, and Gorecki was charged with ministering to these men while they waited for their trials. At first, he was really shaken by the assignment. It said he had visited Dachau and knew the reality of the evil that these men's men had committed. These were some of the highest-ranking officials in Hitler's regime. Finally, recognizing um, and kind of consigning himself to the work, he went to the prison and for several years ministered or months ministered to these men. He led services. He prayed with them. He led them to Christ and even served communion to those who came to faith. Gorecki wasn't willy-nilly about the reality of these men's evil. He didn't give communion to anyone, but only those that he thought were genuinely penitent and had made a profession of faith in Jesus. In fact, he's quoted as saying, I am very slow about ministering the Lord's Supper. I must feel convinced that each candidate not only understands its significance, but that in penitence and faith, he is ready for the sacrament. Gorecki even walked with several of the men to their execution to minister to them before they were hanged. Only four of the 11 men that he ministered had given their lives to Christ. When Gorecki returned back home to uh, the States, he was not welcomed very favorably. He was labeled a Nazi lover and anti-Semitic. And in fact, in his biography, it's noted that while his son was cleaning out his office shortly after his death, he came across an envelope 
jammed with letters that his father had hidden for many years of people who were expressing their hatred towards him. His son's quoted as saying, they were the worst things I ever read directed at my father because of his duty at Nuremberg. They were aghast that this pastor could show grace and offer forgiveness to some of the worst criminals. Townsend notes in his article at one point, he says, the Christian concept of forgiveness is strained by the idea of genocide. Could Christians really believe their God was crucified to forgive those who conceive of the gas showers at Auschwitz? Should anyone who commits evil on a massive scale be offered a path to forgiveness? Or maybe another way you ask that question is, are there people who don't deserve God's compassion and mercy? Are there such sins that are committed in our world that they somehow put us outside of the idea of forgiveness? All of us, many of us, have the sense that everyone has a little bit of a mess, but there are certain people that are beyond just being a mess. And maybe those people shouldn't have mercy shown to them. As I heard one pastor say, there's sinners and then there's sinners. We never like to put ourselves in the second category, do we? To wrestle with the question of God's divine compassion and mercy in the light of heinous sin and the cry of our hearts for justice is to enter into the tension of Jonah chapter 4. If Jonah only ended at the end of chapter 3, it would not quite be the book that it actually is. But part of the problem is most people who know the story of Jonah only know the story of the first three chapters, right? This is a story we tell our kids in class. This is a story that we learned, right? There was a prophet named Jonah and he was called by God to go preach to a city that he didn't want to. And so he ran away from God and he found himself drowning in the ocean and God sent a big giant fish to save Jonah and rescue him and spit him out on dry land and send him back to the people. And so Jonah finally obeyed God and he went to Nineveh and all the people responded and there was an amazing revival, right? This, this is the story of Jonah that we know and that many people love. The problem, though, is Jonah doesn't end in chapter 3. In many ways, Jonah chapter 4 is actually the heart of the book. But here's my warning to you. Right? If I could put like the parental advisory sticker on the scripture, Jonah chapter 4 is one of the most challenging chapters in your Bible. It forces you to ask the deep question of what kind of God is the God of scripture. And who am I in light of that? How do I understand myself? If you leave Jonah chapter 4 unscathed, you either aren't listening or you've hardened your heart so far to the point that you just don't care to listen to what God has to say. And there's a reason people don't always love Jonah chapter 4. But I think it has incredible lessons for us to learn about the reality of God's compassion and mercy and who we are in light of it. So with that said, we're going to jump in and just kind of unpack it as we go along, and then we'll kind of bring it all together at the end. So I'm going to actually start in chapter 3, verse 10, so you can kind of hear the climax of the first three chapters, and then we'll kind of keep going. So Jonah 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
right? If you're just joining us, recap on the story, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh in, Jonah, in chapter 3, finally, out of reluctant obedience, and proclaims the message. And an amazing thing happens. The people listen, and they actually respond. The whole city humbles itself from the top, even down to the animals in sackcloth, and essentially repents of what the evil that they had done. And in Jonah 10, we get this incredible moment that God sees their response of repentance. And what does God decide to do? He relents of the disaster that he was going to bring against them. It's an amazing moment in the book. God actually responds to their repentance. And Pastor Joel did a great job unpacking the reality of repentance and God's response last week. But chapter 10 actually has this fun little play on words that I love that kind of highlights the reality of this, right? It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, that next phrase, God relented of the disaster, is almost the same phrase in the Hebrew. God turned from the evil he was going to bring against them. So when God sees them turn from their evil, God turns from his judgment and decides to show them mercy, One of the clearest examples of God's mercy and grace shown to the Ninevites is here in verse 10. Now, if this were a Hollywood movie, that would make a great ending, right? Finally, the reluctant prophet preaches, the people respond, this is incredible, God is gracious and kind, but that's not how it ends. It actually continues into verse 1, and look what it says, but... It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The first four verses, we get Jonah's response to God's incredible grace and mercy to the Ninevites. And the first thing we see, we would expect Jonah to be excited. He came and preached. The people repented. God shows mercy. You'd think, like, yeah, that's something you should be pumped about. Right, like if I went to downtown Farmington Hills and I said, God's going to come against you and everybody that was down there said, you're right, we want to give our lives to Jesus, I don't think I'd be mad at God. I think I'd be like, yes, that's amazing. But Jonah, he's not happy. He's way mad at God. What's interesting we see here is a little bit of Jonah's root problem come back to the surface. There's this interesting flow in the text. It's a little bit hard to see in the English, but it's really kind of evident in the Hebrew. But I want to try to get you to see it because I think it's important how we kind of, what's being stated by Jonah here. So if, if you go back to verse 10, I'm going to show this text on the screen for you. If you go back to verse 10 and you follow the first couple verses, the words that are highlighted in yellow on your screen all have the same root in the Hebrew, which is the word for evil. So if you read it in a more literal way, right, which we translate it so we can actually understand it a little bit more, but if you read it really literally, what you would see is that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God turned from the evil he was going to bring against them, and he did not do it. But it displeased, or it was evil to Jonah exceedingly, or a literal translation would say it was evil to Jonah a great evil, and he was angry. So what's interesting in the text is the major players in the book are all turning from their evil. God does not do evil. That's not the point, but it's the disaster, that judgment that he was going to bring. But the play on text is poignant. Ninevites are turning from their evil. God's turning from the disaster. And what's Jonah doing? He's leaning into the issue. He actually gets more mad. 
He actually looks at God and says, no, 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 no. What you are doing is wrong. It was a great evil to Jonah. And that idea of anger is this idea of, it has this idea of heat in the Hebrew. It's like he's fuming mad. Why is Jonah so mad at God's mercy and grace? Well, you see a little bit of it in verse 2. Look, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now, this is an important point in the book, right? Jonah flees to Tarshish at the beginning, but the author does not reveal why Jonah flees to Tarshish until this moment in the book. He's withheld that information from you from the whole story until this moment. Why? Because he wants to highlight that this is the key underlying tension for Jonah in the story. Why would Jonah disobey God and go the opposite direction from what he was called to do? Well, here's his reasoning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah essentially says, the whole reason I didn't go to Nineveh is because I knew that you would be gracious to these people. I knew that you were going to show them mercy, that that's the sort of God you are. And I didn't want that to happen. And Jonah brings out kind of one of the key passages in the Old Testament in his prayer to God. The words that Jonah quotes here about God's nature are originally found in Exodus chapter 34. It's where God is making his renewed covenant with the people of Israel, and he reveals to Moses the nature of his character. And I want you to see that for a second because it's important how Jonah views God's character in response to his grace to Nineveh. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 34. If, If that's a little bit too quick for you, I'll put it on the screen. But this is what Exodus 34 says. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It's one of the foundational texts in the Old Testament about God's nature, that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love, but God is also just. He does not overlook sin. Now notice then how Jonah quotes that passage in his thing. He says, I knew that you're gracious and a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Then he adds his own interpretation and relenting from disaster. But what does he leave off? He leaves off the whole statement of God's promise to say, I will bring judgment against those that sin against me. So what is Jonah saying to God? Essentially, this is what he's saying. I knew you'd show them mercy and that you wouldn't be just to those who are wicked. Right? I mean, Jonah has a major problem with the Ninevites. We already rehearsed earlier in the series, but if you missed it, how evil Nineveh was, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and how wicked this city was. I mean, literally, they would kill their enemies, skin them, and hang them over the walls of the city. They would take their heads and put them on stakes outside the city to show their power and might. They were cruel, vindictive, wicked, terrible. And essentially, Jonah says, if you're going to show mercy to them and you're not going to be just upon the most wicked. I mean, these were like Nazi-level wickedness 
in this city. And Jonah's like, I knew it. I knew you'd show them mercy. You're not just God. You don't actually deal with the issues of sin. And so what is Jonah's response? Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah essentially says, if this is how you work, showing compassion on the worst of the worst, I don't want to live in a world like that. I don't want to live in a world where God would show mercy to Nazis. I want nothing to do with a God that somehow shows compassion on that level of evil. That's essentially Jonah's thing. And he puts God in an ultimatum. One commentator says this, Jonah prefers death to life in a world where Israel's enemies are absolved by Israel's own God. Jonah is issuing Yahweh an ultimatum in an attempt to force Yahweh to choose between Jonah and Nineveh, either destroy them or destroy me. That idea, so kill me now, right? That's often the phrase that kind of bubbles up when the world feels completely out of sync with how we should be. I mean, sometimes like, like I've noticed even kids using it jokingly, right? Like, I've noticed this in conversation at times with younger people, like, hey, no screen time tonight. Like, oh, just kill me, gosh, right? Like, we use it as a joke. But it it roots the same, I think. When the world feels out of sync, I think it should be this way, but this is how it's operating. I think God should be this way. Our response is, I don't want any part of that. And that's Jonah's response here. Like, God, if you're going to show them mercy, you're not going to hold justice for their wicked deeds. I don't want to live in a world like that, God. I don't want to have anything to do with this. So just take me out now. And look how God responds. I love God's response here. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Like, God doesn't give him a rational argument back. He just asks him a question. Like, hey, do you think it's okay that you're this mad about the mercy that I'm showing to the Ninevites? The thing I love about God's question here is in many ways it draws attention to Jonah's flawed logic. It actually highlights an irony that takes place in the text. And here's the irony. Jonah is perfectly content when God shows mercy to his wickedness and his people's wickedness, but he's not okay when God shows mercy to someone else's, especially those he views outside of God's ability to show compassion. You actually see that in verse 2 in two ways. First, Jonah says he prayed to the Lord. So Jonah's prayer that he offers here, where else do we see Jonah pray in the book of Jonah? It's in chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the fish, when Jonah is so obstinate to God's plan, he runs from God so much that he literally allows himself to be thrown in the ocean to drown, and God in his kindness sends a fish to save him. And Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, actually prays a prayer of thanksgiving that God would do that for him and proclaims at the end, salvation belongs to God. So Jonah was perfectly happy when God would engage his rebellion and rescue him. Now, here's the second irony in the text. The quote that Jonah takes from Exodus 34. Something happens two chapters earlier before God gives that statement. Remember, God rescues the people from Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai and calls them into covenant to worship him alone. He'll be their God. They'll be their people. Moses goes up on the mountain. But in in Exodus chapter 32... 
Israel turns from worshiping God, they erect a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. They essentially break their covenant with God and act in wickedness towards him. And God shows up and basically says, like, this is a rebellious people. I'm done with them. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God, same idea, relents of his judgment against them. That same phrase in Jonah is found in Exodus 32. And God renews then his covenant in Exodus 34 and says, hey, I'm a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. Right? This is my nature and character. So Jonah, get this, right? Jonah is totally fine with God showing mercy to the wickedness of Israel when they rebel. But when it comes to the Ninevites, he doesn't want anything to do with it. And I love God's question because it just surfaces the irony a little bit. Are you sure you want to be that angry? Aren't you forgetting something? You see, the first part of Jonah forces us to ask the question, Are you angry with God's compassion? When we see God show compassion to the worst of the worst, what stirs in you? For Jonah, it was anger. And what's rooted? What's underneath his anger? Well, it's the same issue we've been seeing throughout the whole book. It's his spiritual pride. When we are angry with the compassion that God shows to people we don't think deserve it, what's underneath that? is that we've elevated ourselves above God and others. We've come to the point where we think we deserve God's mercy, but other people don't. We think we know better than God does, because if he was really what I think God is, he wouldn't act in that way. Spiritual pride is Jonah's core issue. It's seen throughout the book, and it's seen in two major ways. One, spiritual pride leads Jonah to be self-focused. He only cares about himself. I mean, literally the point. He doesn't care about anyone else. Ninevites, God's plan. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to follow through what you say. And he's completely consumed with himself. Even after God rescues him with a fish, he's still focused on himself. That's what spiritual pride does. Takes our eyes off God, his plan, his purposes. And it puts us on us and says, I should be the one who gets to determine how the world runs. And the second problem that Jonah runs into and that spiritual pride leads to is self-righteousness. I'm in the right, they're in the wrong. And because of that, I deserve this from you, God, and they don't. And that's Jonah's point here. The Ninevites, they're way worse than I am. And they deserve your judgment. But me, my people, we deserve your mercy. Underneath all of that is the issue of spiritual pride. And God just comes along and asks this simple question. And as he does, he focuses on, wait, what's really in your heart, Jonah? And what's really in our hearts? So how does Jonah respond to God's question? All right, look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, this next part of the story is really the heart of the book of Jonah. In fact, I would say this is the commentary on everything that takes place in the rest of the book. And the reason we know that is verses 5 through 11 don't follow any of the rest of the parallelism of the book. If you read through the first three chapters and the first part of chapter 4, they follow a very parallel structure. God calls Jonah 
Jonah, in the first chapter, flees from God, engages with some pagans. The pagans turn to God. Jonah turns away from God. God intervenes, and Jonah responds with a prayer. That's what happens in 1 and 2. Chapter 3, God calls Jonah again. This time, he reluctantly obeys, goes and engages with some pagans, some non-Israelites. They respond in repentance Jonah doesn't like it, and Jonah prays. So there's a very parallel structure to the story, but then you get to verse 5, and the parallel breaks. There's no parallel to verses 5 through 11. Why? Because this is the author's commentary on the story of Jonah. He's using this story and God's story of what he does in Jonah to help you see, here's the core issue that I've been trying to expose to you the whole time. So look what he says. So again, Jonah's response went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what becomes of the city. What's interesting here is you have Jonah responding almost in the identical way that he responds in the first half of the book. Right When God comes to Jonah and says, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against them, what does Jonah do? He doesn't answer God. He doesn't say anything. He just turns and heads in the opposite direction. So God shows up at Jonah at the end and he says, hey, are you, do you do well to do, be angry? And Jonah doesn't say anything and he just turns and leaves. And the author wants to highlight that Jonah's continued movement this way continues to place him outside of God's favor and desire. It puts him in a negative spiritual state. The idea here that Jonah went east of the city, the idea of moving east is found throughout the Old Testament as a way of when people leave God's favor and blessing and move into a place of hostility and move into a place of judgment. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, you know what direction they head? East of Eden. When Cain kills Abel, and God comes looking. Where does he go? He goes east. When Lot leaves Abraham and goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, this text says he goes east. So the author's being very clear here. Jonah, in his spiritual defiance, is once again moving outside of God's desired path for him. Right? Jonah's right back where we started the whole book. If you remember the metaphor I opened up about sitting at odds with my son when he wouldn't eat his breakfast. And I use that to illustrate the way all of us sit at times across from God and say, I want nothing to do with what you're calling me to do in this area of my life. And Jonah's right back in that same place. He hasn't ever left like three chapters and he still has this same issue. And God comes to him and says, well, is it okay that you're angry? And Jonah essentially like turns his back, like, I'm not even listening. I'm out of here. Like, I'm going to go do my own thing, God. And I'm just going to wait for you to finally get on my page. Right? Like, that's his, his whole setup is back in that same place. Again, spiritually defiant, spiritually prideful, completely turned from God. So he goes out east, he builds this booth, and he waits for God to finally get on his page. All right, I'm going to wait till you actually wake up from your senses, God, and judge these people. So I'm going to sit here till you do something about it. And how does God engage Jonah in his spiritual defiance? Well, look what it says in verse 6. He essentially gives Jonah an object lesson. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah's sulking in his spiritual defiance, and what does God show Jonah? He shows him mercy. 
He causes this plant to grow up over him. We don't know what type of plant, and that's not really the point for us to figure out, was it this plant, was it that plant? What it would like. The point, though, is that God shows mercy. It brings coolness and shade to Jonah. And it actually makes an interesting point in that text. It says to save him from his discomfort. And if you're reading the ESV, that has a little sub-point underneath that says the literal translation of that is to save him from his evil. Wait, where did we see that before? Oh, in verse 1 where Jonah was angry at God because of he thought God's actions were evil. But God comes in to show Jonah, no, 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 no. Even in the face of spiritual defiance, I'll still show you mercy. And how does Jonah respond? He's ecstatic. The literal translation is he rejoiced with a great rejoicing. When Jonah experiences God's divine mercy, he is pumped. Yes, this plant is awesome. It's providing exactly what I needed. He's so excited. It's the only time he gets happy in the whole book is when some plant grows up and he experiences a moment of mercy to God. So what does God do? But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a... Okay, notice God appoints. So God's the one in control of all these moments, right? We see this throughout the book of Jonah. God's never out of control, despite all of Jonah's rebellion. And so he comes, and he sends this worm. Now, the worm in the Old Testament is a symbol of judgment. We see it when God brings the worm, when the Israelites fail to obey him with the manna in the desert in Exodus 14. We see it when he brings it in Deuteronomy. So God's bringing a judgment now against Jonah and this plant. The plant dies. God appoints a scorching east wind, likely to take out Jonah's booth, right? So he's like, the plant's gone, the booth is gone, and now Jonah is sitting under the sun with it beating on his head, and it's terrible. He's experiencing the reality of God's judgment in this moment, and he hates it. So what does he say? He repeats a line. And he asked, in verse 8, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, I love Jonah, author of Jonah. He's so ironic. So like he experiences God's judgment and what's his response? I wish I were dead. Just kill me. But when the Ninevites experience God's mercy, what does Jonah say? I wish I was dead. You see, what he highlights in this simple phrase is that Jonah has a completely flawed logic when it comes to the application of God's judgment and mercy. When mercy is extended to his enemies, he wants to die. When mercy is extended to himself, he's happy. When judgment is extended to God's enemies, he's happy. When judgment is extended to himself, he's miserable and wants to die. Again, it's the problem of the book. His pride has led him to say, those people deserve your judgment, not me. And when you show it to me, man, God, why don't you just take me out? And yet, here comes God again in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Wait, hold on. Didn't we just hear that same phrase? So is God asking Jonah about the plant, or is God asking Jonah about his response to the mercy he showed to Nineveh? Well, it's both. God's brilliant, isn't he? And he said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This idea here of Jonah's anger, right? 
I mean, like, the dude cannot get more spiritually defined. Even when God comes to challenge, he essentially responds, I'm still in the right, and I'm still mad about this. And who are you to take away my plant? I'm angry enough, God, just kill me again. And then here's God's statement. And here's the crux of the book. It's God's answer to Jonah's spiritual dilemma. And here's what's fascinating, okay? Jonah's response in 4 verse 2 through 4 is exactly 39 words in the Hebrew. You want to know what the number of words God's response is in the last two verses of Jonah? 39 words. So here's the answer to Jonah's dilemma about God's compassion and mercy to the worst of the worst. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? God essentially comes to Jonah and he said, hey, you pity, you feel sorry for something you had nothing to do with. You didn't cause that plant to grow. You didn't cause it to die. You had no control. And yet you're so emotionally wrecked about it. Should I not have that same response to the great city of Nineveh? That word 120,000 is a symbol for a multitude. It's a symbolic number for this multitude of people. And that Hebrew idiom, they don't know if they're right from their left. It's the idea of not being in line with God's wisdom. So should, God's essentially saying, you had pity on a plant. Shouldn't I have pity on something even greater than that? A whole multitude of people who aren't walking with me, even down to their cattle? And look at Jonah's response. Oh, wait. This is like the Monty Python moment in Jonah. Have you ever seen the Holy Grail? You know, you're like expecting him to charge the battle. I'm ruining it for you if you haven't. And then here comes the ending and it just cuts. That's Jonah. You're like reading, you're like, oh, okay, what's Jonah's response? God gives him this challenge. What's he going to do? And then the book just ends. Why? Because Jonah wasn't really about Jonah, was he? I told you from the beginning, Jonah's a representative prophet. The story of the Jonah is the story of God's people. It's the story of all of us. And the question that God poses at the end is to challenge each one of us to say, are you like Jonah or not? Do you have the right view of who I am and what that means for how you should live in the world? We began the series by recognizing every single one of us is like Jonah. We all have parts of our lives where we are spiritually defiant, where we find in our hearts moments where we say, I don't like that, God, and I don't want to do what you want to do. And the book then comes full circle to challenge us in those moments to say, who knows better, you or the Lord? Do you have a right understanding of who God is? And do you have a right understanding of how God operates in the world? You see, we're all Jonah. One commentator said it this way, a Jonah lurks in every Christian heart whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. All of us have issues of spiritual pride. And the question is, will we relinquish that 
and come humbly before the Lord. The question that God asks of Jonah in relation to the pity of the plant and the pity of Nineveh forces us to ask two simple questions of ourselves. And we'll wrap up the book with these questions. First, do you have a right understanding of God? Do you have a right understanding of God, of who he is, of how he operates in the world, of his nature? Have you aligned yourself with him? It forces us to ask the question, do we really recognize the radical compassion and graciousness of who God is towards sinful human beings like you and I? What we see time and time again throughout the book, what we see challenged even in this question is that God's character is revealed as truly one who is slow to anger, who's abounding in mercy, who's steadfast in his covenant love, who's compassionate and who's willing to turn from his judgment when there is repentance. That that is the very nature of God, that he would make a way to show his grace. It's all over the book of Jonah. Everywhere you turn, you see God's radical, incredible, at times unfathomable grace towards sinful human beings. In Jonah, to know God is to know a God of grace. I love the story from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He tells the story of how the fame... Apologist C.S. Lewis once walked into a British conference where they were debating comparative religions and a bunch of scholars had gathered and they were discussing what was unique about Christianity. Was it the incarnation? Was it the resurrection? What was ultimately unique about the Christian faith? And the story goes that Lewis walked into the room and asked them, what's this rumpus about? And he heard in reply that they were all arguing what Christianity's unique contribution among the world religion was. And Lewis's response was this, oh, that's easy it's grace. What's unique about the God of Scripture is that he is a God of grace who shows kindness and mercy to the worst of sinful human beings. Yancey goes on to write, the notion of God's loving love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. It's only in Christ that we see that our God is truly a God of grace, that despite our sin, he makes a way that we can be restored in relationship to him. And the first step of being challenged in our spiritual pride and our spiritual defiance is to say, do we really recognize that God is a God of grace? I mean, that's why scripture says, Romans 2, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. That's why Peter would say in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the first step of dealing with our reality of our spiritual pride is to recognize that even in our defiance, God is still turned towards us in patience and love. God, listen, God is not some pissed off parent who's quick-tempered and mad at you 
every time you make a mistake. Praise the Lord, God does not parent us like I sometimes struggle to parent my own children. When my son sat at this table not ready to eat his eggs, you know how I was? I was quick in temper, angry and mad. But our God is not like that. Even in our spiritual defiance, Scripture reminds us he's slow in anger. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He sits at the other side of the table when you're at odds with him and says, come back, I love you, and I'm ready to receive you with mercy and compassion no matter what you've He's a God of mercy. That's the first thing. But the second question that Jonas forces us ultimately to wrestle with is this. Have you accepted your equal need of God's grace? Do you see that God is gracious? And have you received that grace for yourself? What have we been dealing with in this book? Jonah's spiritual defiance, his spiritual judgmentalism, and what do all those have the root in? The same issue we see in chapter four, spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is the root of all of our sin and evil. When we put ourselves in a position that says, I know better than God and I am better than others, we will not be ready to receive God's grace. Spiritual pride is the thing that got Jonah in trouble time and time again. It's the same thing that got Israel in trouble time and time again. And it's the same issue that gets all of us in trouble time and time again. When we sit in the place that says, God, you get on my page, I don't get on your page. And the reason spiritual pride is so deadly is that spiritual pride leaves us unable to receive the grace of God. Because to receive God's grace is to kill spiritual pride. Because God's grace, it kills our self-focus. It takes our eyes off ourselves and recognizes, I have nothing in me that deserves God to rescue and save me. And yet what we see in Jonah time again is that God pursues us in our rebellion and our self-destruction, even to the depths of the ocean, even to our very bottom. And God still loves us despite ourselves. Thus, we can say like Jonah, salvation is not of me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God's grace puts our eyes on him and it kills self-righteousness. God's grace reminds us that despite what we've done, we are no better than anyone else. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We have offended our creator. And when we recognize that, we recognize we have nothing to offer. We have no right for God's mercy only God's judgment, and yet God shows mercy and offers mercy to all of us. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved, and it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Salvation is out of God's sovereign compassion alone. And that leaves us in a place not of spiritual pride, not of self-righteousness, but of spiritual humility and recognizing our righteousness is only in Christ. Not one of us has a right or is more deserving of God's mercy than another, and yet he offers it to each one of us freely. God's love is so amazing that it still saves a sinner like me. And yet, the challenge at the end is that to accept God's grace 
is to extend God's grace even to the worst of the worst. You see, when you've truly recognized your need for grace and you've received it, it will transform you to become a person of grace. Jonah neither received God's grace nor extended God's grace to anyone else. He stayed in his spiritual pride. But when we've received God's grace, it causes us not to hate our enemies, but to love them as Jesus called us to do. It causes us to extend grace and forgiveness to the worst of others because we recognize our own propensity towards that and the nature that God showed grace towards us. One final story to make the point. Corey ten Boom lived in the Netherlands during the rise of Nazi Germany. And her and her family made the choice during that time to hide Jews in her home as the Nazis came seeking and searching for them. Eventually, they were found out. And Corey and her sister Betsy were shipped off to Ravensbrück, a Nazi concentration camp where they lived through the duration of the war until they were set free. While they were there, Corey's sister Betsy died from the heinous conditions and torture that they experienced. After being released, Corey um, wrote a well-known book called The Hiding Place and began a ministry of proclaiming the truth and reality of God's forgiveness. She was a devout Christian. But Scott Sauls tells a story about Corey Ten Boom that I think is so poignant for what we realize in Jonah. He tells the story how one day Corey was actually returned to Germany to declare the reality of God's forgiveness there. And one night while she was speaking, she saw a man's face in the crowd and she recognized him as one of the most cruel and vindictive guards from the camp. Afterwards, he reached out his hand and said to her, a fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Will you forgive me? This is what Corey wrote about that encounter. She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. He goes on, as she reached out her hand to the former guard, Corey says something incredible took place. She continues, the current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, I had never known love so intensely as I did then, but even then I realized it was not my love, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. 
it was Jesus who taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. While Jonah shows us spiritual pride, Gorecki and Corey Ten Boom show us what spiritual humility that's rooted in the gospel looks like. It recognizes that our God is a God of grace, that he has shown us mercy in the work of his son by sending him to die for our sins and rising again. And though we did not deserve forgiveness, not one of us, God still showed it to us. And because of that, when we receive the gift of God's grace, we become the sort of people that extend God's grace. We turn from our defiance. We turn from our pride. We reunite with our Father, and then we become instruments in the world of proclaiming the truth of Jesus and ministering his grace and compassion to those around us. And so the question at the end of Jonah is, will you relinquish your spiritual pride? Will you move to the place where you recognize that there's parts of your heart that you've been at odds with God, just like all of us have? And the only reason that you have a relationship with him is merely his kindness and mercy. And will you show the sort of kindness and mercy to others around you? Should God not pity the Ninevites? Should God not love sinners? Not just sinners, but sinners. Should we not pity our enemies? The answer is there. We should. But the question that Jonah asks of us is, will we? Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.